Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Tuesday, April 28th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And before we get started, I would like to congratulate Evan on getting married this past week in the coronavirus. Oh, but anyway, thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But Evan, what are we doing here? We are going to cover a number of topics and discuss them. Essentially, what we're doing is we're inviting you into our inner conversations that have their origins back at the Wendy's of Galesburg, Illinois. And we are going to attempt to keep our discussions, if not focused, at least in good faith and always adequately informed. Oh, they they go before the Wendy's. They go all the way back to the driveway at Evan's house <laughs> where I, to drop him off, we would park the car and be there for hours discussing nothing neither of our moms wanted to know about each other. But <laughs> anyway, we uh, we try to be in good faith. We try to believe that other people, even though they may disagree with us, can have valid arguments. We don't have the only perspective and that we are not on the ivory tower. So, Evan, I alluded to it before, but uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, as Joe had mentioned, I am now a happily married man. And doing so, getting to that stage in the middle of a pandemic was a little bit tricky. But we were able to do it and still do our best not to compromise anyone's health. So this segment, I couldn't decide, so it's going to have two titles. It's either going to be called Love in the Time of Coronavirus and then, you know, parentheses, How to Get Married During a Pandemic. It's like a Doctor Strange love situation. Is it uh, Is it too rony to handle? I don't no. know. <laughs> I don't know. That uh, it's, uh, absolute sidebar... That new Netflix show, Too Hot to Handle, seems unbelievably horny. I cannot watch it. But what what is it? I have known nothing about this. It's a show. It's like a typical like reality TV show where it's like, oh, we get a bunch of people on an island and you know, have some contests and they're all just so fucking hot. And mm. but the premise of it is that they cannot have sex with or kiss each other in any way otherwise they get money deducted from them from like some total that they would get if they did nothing so um it it, it just seems so fucking horny but anyway your wedding <laughs> yeah so do you want that to be the lead in I, I we could change this up no no this is good this is what we're doing okay this was organic, and and I, I don't want to lose a minute of it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I, I could tell you about how uh, how wonderful the day was, how beautiful my wife looked, and it would all be true. But uh, I'll, I'll save that for when I'm talking to you in person. And in terms of the segment, I'm going to try to catalog some of the challenges that we faced, some of the ways that we had to modify our planning in response to the coronavirus and legitimate health concerns and governmental orders. So the biggest change that we had to endure was 
a shift in venue. Obviously, we had planned to get married in Ohio in Bowling Green where we met and fell in love, but the pastor there couldn't guarantee us that we would have the space open to us, which is absolutely fair. And he was a wonderful guy, and uh, we still have a good relationship with him. And obviously, our 250-person reception was a non-starter, and so getting married in Ohio was off the table. Thankfully, my mother works at a church in rural Illinois in the small town of Alito, and the pastor there was willing to help us plan and execute a wedding with appropriate social distancing. So we were able to lock it in and complete our marriage application and wedding planning and all of that from Alito. The next uh, biggest thing was that we had to cancel or postpone all of our vendors. You know, we had we had booked vendors in the Bowling Green, Ohio area, and so you're, it's, it's going to be very difficult to ask a DJ to come all the way to Alito when there's not going to be a reception and travel is not advised. I don't think that DJing is considered an essential service. So we had to do it with pretty much just what was around and what could be accessed through the appropriate socially distant measures. So our uh, dinner after we got married was pizza local pizza and it was awesome you know not quite the fancy catered meal we had planned but it was good and now was uh, there now was there the uh was there the meat pizza and the vegetarian option what was that had yeah actually there's (laughs) pepperoni and cheese baby damn uh we had everyone covered um a big thing that you probably noticed if you were able to watch the ceremony was that it was live streamed so we made sure that um we had a video feed going through facebook so that even though people couldn't be there in person they could still participate in the event from afar and it was really touching for us to see how many people were interested in watching that live stream friends of ours who we hadn't even spoken with in years you know everyone wanted to celebrate with us even if it had to be from their own homes. And we really felt the love and it was awesome. And another thing was that we had to maintain social distance during the ceremony. Our, the, the pastor who we were working with in Alito, he said that as a general rule, he never liked to stand on any levels above the bride and groom because he, you know, the day is not about him, but that was what was necessary to use the space of the church while also maintaining the appropriate social distance. So he he stood on a, a platform back enough, far away enough that meets within the six feet requirement, and he did the he conducted the service from up there. Uh, we thankfully were able to have the best man and maid of honor there, and if if you saw the service, you know they stood six feet away from us the traditionally the best man is responsible for holding on to the rings but for 
my brother, Walker, who was my best man, to have the rings and give them to the pastor and then have the pastor bless them and return them to us would require an awful lot of inadvised contact. So I held on to the rings and then the pastor blessed them from afar, as, as I, I said to him. I, th- I think the blessing can can pass the distance. I think uh, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> God, so, God's reach isn't within a few inches. Like it can go a little bit farther out from the the. the yeah, pastor. God's got a God's got a great wingspan. I God's mean, got just, range. He does. You know, he uh, he leads the NBA in blocks. You know, he's he's just incredible. Um, but at the end of the day, it it, it worked out. We still got married. We just didn't have some of the the formal trappings that we had planned for we didn't really have the bachelor bachelorette parties you know going out to the bars having one last crazy night we were just in an airbnb and it was great i have no complaints it was just it was just different and it ended up being very good um we are not really taking a honeymoon that we we already planned not to for uh, i guess more or less financial reasons we we will eventually but if we had planned a honeymoon i guarantee it would have been canceled or postponed it wouldn't have happened in in the way that it had been prescribed um but at the end of the day i am just so happy to announce my eternal love for my soulmate and that was not compromised Nothing about the substance of the event changed, and even with all of the craziness happening around me, I can honestly say to you, it was the best day of my life, and I am so thrilled that so many people worked hard for us to be able to still accomplish what we had been working so hard for in a safe way, and... I'm I'm over the moon, guys. I'm so happy, and that's pretty much all there is to it. That's good. Yeah, uh, one thing or two things I wanted to add is that um, it's funny because uh, Evan left this part out of the story, but I have been getting a lot of mileage out of this story because a few, uh, I I think it was like a little over a month ago, I just kind of asked Evan like, "Hey, what's going on with the wedding?" I think they had just canceled the ceremony or something and evan was like i found a guy who will marry us (laughs) i it wasn't quite like that but that's what it felt like and i loved it like in these times evan found a guy you know there's burner phones all over you know meetings that had to be had but he has a guy yeah i had uh had my clandestine meeting with my marriage guy, my wedding guy. Yeah, yeah there there were some drops up. in some parking lots that had to occur. <laughs> um, but then that was that was great. But then also, I just wanted to ask. So you guys got the uh, the the meat eater and vegetarian options. Were you guys able to obtain an open bar for you guys? We were not. We had some uh, Leinenkugel Summer Shandy and some Mike's Hard Lemonade, and that got us through. Ah oh, man. I, I was just hope 
like an open bar for two people can be a pretty open or however many people <laughs> can be a pretty small venue like and an open bar could be a single bottle of alcohol but um, <laughs> all right then sure we had an open bar yeah yeah that's what i was going for yeah as much as One... you could drink it's free it's already paid for yeah yeah so uh congrats man okay Thank you. And there is one other thing that it uh, it's an adjustment wearing a ring every day when you're not a guy who wears rings, as I imagine most guys aren't just wearing rings for no reason. Um, And it's even weirder when you are getting used to wearing a ring and you realize how frequently you wash your hands. (laughs) Like, especially right now, obviously, hand washing is very important Mm. and. I just feel like all, all I'm doing is is touching my ring while I'm washing my hands. So it's you just one of those forget. quirky things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, shit. I'm still married. Cool. Oh, fuck. Shit. Man, I didn't realize. Symbol of an eternal bond. Yeah, it's got soap on it. Crazy. Probably stinks underneath. Jeez. <laughs> I try to try to take good care. Good, 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 good. So, Joe. Uh, yes, Evan. What do you want to talk about? Oh, I want to talk about energy and the future of it at kind of a higher. I mean, this isn't going to be a super in-depth look, but I always feel the need to qualify what I'm about to talk about. But anyway, um, so recently I have been doing some research because I, I've been thinking, hey, I think it would be a good investment to start a solar farm and maybe I'm sharing my hand a little bit too much here, but oh well. So I've been doing some research and been looking at the numbers and at least currently it seems like solar is at least cost comparable. I mean, they do say solar is the cheapest form of electricity right now and you know, depending on the types of loans that you would get with, um, you know, paying for the solar panels, it definitely can be the cheapest uh, form of energy out there because once you just buy it, it's you just plop it on some land and it works. And they're efficient enough now that they can produce enough electricity to be very cost competitive, even in less sunny climates. You know, it doesn't have to be the desert for it to be economically viable. It can be, you know, in a Midwestern state that doesn't get a lot of sun traditionally. So I've been looking at that pretty closely, um, just running rough numbers. And um, but I was looking at some stuff about energy and I came across this TED talk by his name is Michael Schellenberger. And he is an environmentalist. And in the climate change debate, there's been a a tension between environmentalism and climate change. Um, They're kind of lumped in together because in the United States, before climate change was an issue, you know, there were environmentalists and conservationists. And they were the ones who were most likely to take up the banner of fighting global warming or climate change, whichever uh, way you want to call it. 
but they aren't exactly in concert with each other at all times. Like, so to, you know, a lot of people see to fight climate change, we need to develop battery technology or wrap up battery production in order to store renewable energies in order to make it more feasible that we could power the planet from those sources. But an environmentalist or a conservationist could be against the building of a mine that will uh, extract the minerals needed to build those batteries because it will desert or disturb the ecosystem of that area and cause pollution that isn't just carbon in that area. So there is a tension between that and this uh, Michael Schellenberger, you know, brings that tension out a little bit. Where it turns out that, and, and I haven't done a ton of outside exploration of this, but he brings up the point that solar and wind aren't the best methods of producing electricity, just kind of generally as far as a grid sense goes, and not conservationally or environmentally, because to, in order to build a lot of solar panels, you need a lot of space, which means disrupting the ecosystem of a large area where maybe I could contend if you take an already set up farm and put up a bunch of solar panels, maybe it doesn't have as much of an impact. But that also wind turbines kill birds, which his contention was that, you know, it's not even so much that it's the uh, smaller birds or you know more common birds, but the birds that can get killed are oftentimes more endangered bird species than uh, we would be protecting, that we would be protecting otherwise. So his plug is for nuclear. And nuclear has a bad rep worldwide. I think I saw some statistic that, you know, when surveyed, when people were asked what they believe the future of clean technology was, 85% of people said solar and only 28% of people said nuclear. And it's a little bit concerning because one, nuclear is a 100% carbon-free fuel source. It is the most energy-dense fuel source that we have and it is incredibly safe. But, you know, the amount of deaths that have resulted from nuclear energy are way, 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 way almost non-existent compared to the deaths caused by all other forms of electricity generation. But those big notable disasters that have happened, you know, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, uh, the Fukushima power plant in Japan, those have all tainted nuclear's uh, image. And as someone said, you know, you can never get a second chance to make a good first impression. And nuclear has made a bad first impression. Now, the science has come along in nuclear energy to make it more viable. And why would we choose nuclear over uh, renewables, such as wind and solar? Well, wind and solar are variable. Solar only comes during the day and at peak hours is really when you get electricity from it. So maybe only four or five hours a day you get real good 
top level electricity generation and wind power only happens when it's windy. And if you get a situation where it's like a really windy day and it's, you know, the middle of the day and it's sunny, then there's going to be more electricity on the grid that can handle. But then on other days, if it's not windy and it's cloudy out, you're not going to be generating any electricity. And we currently don't have any battery technology or any battery technologies on the near horizon who can rise that can rise to the occasion for storing enough electricity for that. But nuclear can keep going the whole time and it's clean. And countries like France already get 95% of their electricity from nuclear energy. It can be done. And there are new technologies on the horizon that make it even safer for nuclear. There are some technologies where the fuel is put into little balls and they rotate through the system. And then if there's a power failure, they just go into a cooling tank. Or there are systems where the uh, the fuel is in a liquid form or they're instead of using uranium, they use thorium, which is way safer because it has a lower chance of melting down. So there are new technologies on the horizon that can expand the role of nuclear energy. Um, and it just feels like we need to put a little bit more societal resources into that because we could do that in the next 10 years without, I mean, with existing technologies, they just have to be fully you know, run through the course. So, uh, those are, I, you know, I'm kind of second guessing whether, uh, you know, a solar farm is, I mean, it could be a good investment, but who knows? I, I, I think nuclear needs to be on the table more. So that's, that's what I got. What are your thoughts, Evan? Yeah. So I am generally pro nuclear as well. I know that it has a really bad rap because of these big ticket disasters that Joe mentioned. But what you have to remember about the nuclear meltdowns is that they either came very early in the widespread adoption of nuclear technology. And as Joe said, the science has progressed so much past that. Or in the case of Fukushima, it took an actual tsunami like a, you know, a force majeure act of God scenario to destroy that plant. And the other big concern that people talk about is nuclear waste, which is valid, but it the, the volume of nuclear waste is much lower than many people realize. And so I am a firm believer that nuclear is probably the strongest way to go while we await stronger battery technology. Yeah. And, and this it, it isn't to say that we don't keep trying to do research and development on solar or on wind, but nuclear is here now and you know very very smart people design and maintain nuclear power plants. You don't hear about the cases like France, where they run almost their entire grid on nuclear energy with no disaster and very little controversy. And one thing that is kind of a perfect intersection of my worlds is what's known as the Simpson effect. For several decades, the most prominent depiction of nuclear energy in American culture has been 
through my favorite television program, The Simpsons. And it's, you know, just funny, goofy, Homer sucks at his job and there's meltdowns all the time. But what happens when a show has been running so long is that and it becomes sort of culturally dominant when it discusses topics that don't get a lot of play in other mainstream media sources. And so people associate nuclear energy with danger and these horrible catastrophes. We get the sense that that everything is just one incompetent employee away from complete meltdown and destruction, when in reality there are so many safety features and so much good learning that has taken place in the wake of Chernobyl that nuclear energy bears little resemblance to what is shown on the Simpsons and in other media reports. Well, and at least, and even, I mean, that's just so for contemporary and for the future, like what I, I've watched some stuff on new nuclear technologies and the plants that they're designing for, you know, for future use don't even need a human to shut the plant down. Like no human interaction is needed if it goes on for long enough, it'll just shut itself down. That's awesome. Through through natural like gravity <laughs> and shit like that <laughs> that you know can't be uh, messed around with. And I think this is a real opportunity because it's you know these first few generations. I think we're up to Gen three of nuclear power plants, and they're working on Generation four. So if we can get to a point where we can come up with a nuclear technology that is easy to produce, but then also the inputs and outputs aren't also able to be weaponized, which is somewhat the case with thorium, that could be a major breakthrough because one of the issues with new nuclear power proliferation is that the same technology that is used to make current nuclear power is very similar to the same the technology used to make nuclear bombs. So if we were able to, I mean, let's say the United States, fund nuclear power energy and development to create a nuclear power that is cost-effective, safe, very, you know, very, very safe, meltdown proof, and that also has inputs and outputs that can't be used for weapons. That would be like the biggest breakthrough in energy technology because that means that could go all over the world and wouldn't have to worry so much about security. You know, you would have to worry about containment of the uh, the spent fuel, but. Even they're they're talking about the spent fuel of like a thorium reactor or some of these new generation of uh, fuels not being as radioactive or dangerous to people. So I think there's a future in this technology that can be explored and developed that can lead to, I mean, achieving the goal of zero carbon emission and then you know if we can save the world from having to make batteries for the power grid we can use all those batteries to make cars or other you know electric things that need them as well 
so we could lessen the impact on the environment from mining. We could, you know, there, it just seems like there's a lot that nuclear can do. But as a society, we need to decide to take that next step. Yeah, it is at this point mostly a question of political will. And it, it does there, – there is some legitimacy to the claim that it's – you know, it would be – all right, let me, let me rephrase. It's – there's absolute credence in the idea that we are worried about proliferating nuclear energy because it could lead to proliferation of nuclear weapons. Because if you take uranium and enrich it, that you can enrich it to a point past its use in – energy and into something that is weapons grade but the nuclear material itself does not have to be weapons grade however it's the fear that it will be enriched and weaponized that's stopping its proliferation similarly at home it's the fear of a meltdown or the fear of waste or just the fear of being in proximity to a nuclear plant that is stopping us from moving forward with technology that is safe and effective. So you I'm a firm believer, firm believer in it. Fun fact about uh, radiation, power plant radiation. So if you were to stand near a coal-fired power plant you would actually be exposed to more radiation than standing outside a nuclear power plant. Do you know why that is? Because when you burn off coal, there are there is a number, there's an amount of radioactive material within them. And with when you, you know, use uh, radioactive material in a nuclear power plant, it's built to contain that radiation. But from a coal-fired power plant, it's all just released to the air. So all that radioactive material that is within coal, you know, the trace amounts of it. But, you know, if you're burning it at high amount, Mm -hmm. then they get more than the plant, which is designed to contain it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just put out into the air. And then another um, portion of uh, the kind of question with solar is a, a problem that I hadn't even thought of was. What do we do with the panels once they're past like the 25 year uh, window when they're feasible, like when each individual panel is good for generating electricity? (laughs) Like, I don't I don't think there is currently a refurbishing process that they can go through. And there's a fear that if they, uh, you know, if they were to you know, reach the end of their life cycle, they would just get shipped off to a third world country where all e-waste goes for the most part. And a big part of that is just burning off all the shit that isn't valuable. Mm-hmm. So that could also create a lot of pollution. I mean, I, nothing's perfect, but um, it does seem like the future of ne- nuclear technology is the future of energy. And another fun fact the state of Illinois gets about 50% of its electricity from nuclear. I think I knew that, or, you know, if not the exact percentage, it was significant. So Yeah, yeah. So, and only about, a, a, at this point, only about a quarter is coal, which is relatively good. 
not great, <laughs> but um, I mean, as far as states go, um, it, it's not the worst case scenario. So, yeah, that's uh, that's the energy and the future of it. Briefly by Joe. <laughs> We have arrived once again at the main topic, which hopefully next week we'll have a actual main topic. But this week we are once again back at current events grab bag. Heyo. So, Evan, I, I'm pawning, I'm kicking this off to you. What should we start with? <laughs> Well, I want to give us a chance to use our election music again. So we're going to talk about the decision that the New York Democratic establishment has made in canceling their presidential primary. All right. Music playing. Yeah, that was that was the pause for the music. All righty. So today. New York State has announced that they are canceling their Democratic presidential primary. Yeah, heard it here. Not first, but you did hear it here. Yep, you heard it. So reading into their justification was kind of twofold. Essentially that Joe Biden has won the nomination from their view that holding a vote at this point would be endangering more people than it otherwise would. And B, this is because um, while most people understand presidential primaries, they happen on a day and there's like other stuff on the ballot In roughly 20 counties in New York state, there is nothing else on the ballot. So by canceling the presidential primary, they are canceling the voting needed for all those places and let's poll workers and voters stay home to stay safe from the coronavirus. They were supposed to have their election, I believe at some point in April, but they moved it to June and then finally decided to cancel the presidential primary. Yeah. And a lot of people are very upset about it and I've got, I can kind of see uh, a number of different perspectives here. So on the one hand, it does make sense to try to limit interaction as much as possible. And Joe Biden will be the nominee. There's there's nothing about the New York primary that will change it. So I understand the rationale from that side. Also, we have to remember that the Democratic Party is not the government. They don't have to hold these elections or primaries in any prescribed manner. They could, it's it's a party decision. They've decided to do it through a primary system, but they're really not beholden to anyone. They can pick who they want as their nominee for president. And so there's no, you know, this isn't, at this point, this is not a, a crisis in democracy it's kind of shitty, but it doesn't really shake any institutions to their core. But there are two areas in which I see some legitimate frustration. Number one is that the party is basically saying to New York voters, we don't really care what you have to say. We don't give a shit. It's all the same if you 
never get to vote. And so just sort of on a messaging standpoint, I think that it definitely doesn't show a ton of respect to Democratic voters in New York. And I understand being upset in that respect. And then uh, the second, which I think was a point brought up by Bernie Sanders and his statement, and he was pretty mad and pissed off. And a lot of it, I think, just ended up uh, amounted to sour grapes. But he made a good point that if Donald Trump wants to start messing with the November election, this is uh, this could be a precedent and give the signal that it's okay to start canceling elections, which is a dangerous, slippery slope. I think it was also pointed out by Sanders and many others that instead of devoting the energy to canceling the primary, the way to go would be to expand access to vote by mail. And that's harder, but I think it's valuable. And so to sum up, my take on it is it's not sort of this dastardly, horrible deed and it's not, you know, rigging a primary or anything because it's not going to change the outcome. But it is unfortunate that they took the lazy way out. Well, in some ways they did. I mean, one, it was decided by the state Democratic Party and not yes, the National true. Democratic Party. No, no, and, that's a really important distinction that the DNC nationally did not ask for them to cancel and neither did the Biden team. So it, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's not an insignificant remark. And then also um, just a few days prior, uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, had actually uh, issued an executive order that every citizen of New York was to be mailed an application to apply for an absentee ballot. So they were going down the voting by mail path or at least opening that up um, to a greater or making it easier for a greater number of people to participate in that. So, I mean, I don't really know which way or any way to go on this, but though that's just another fact in the case. Um, yeah, sure. So then I guess to me that makes it even more suspect that they just didn't want to hear from their New York constituency. And again, they don't have, you know, the, the New York Democratic Party doesn't have to run a primary, but a little, a little weird that they don't think it's important enough, important enough. Yeah. So um, I wonder... If other states are going to start following suit, I mean, um, a lot of states have already pushed back their primaries. I Indiana did. Yeah. And I suspect that a lot of states um, actually have other things on the ballot going on as well. So who knows? Maybe New York State is a an outlier on this, but we will only know in the coming days and weeks and months. Sure. So. Sure. So, so Joe, what else is, what else is kicking around this week in current events? Well, 
economics still happens at a diminished capacity, but what we can't we can't just uh, put that in a lockbox, wait it out. Yes, that's what Al Gore wanted to put in a lockbox. <laughs> this is uh, what he foresaw. Man, what if Al Gore had been elected? Oh man, you want to you want to go down that alternate history rabbit hole? You want to spend the next four hours talking about that? That is a huge <laughs> counterfactual, <laughs> like absolutely mammoth in scale. I yeah. think I think even bigger than like what if John McCain or you know any of the pre any of the other elections over the last few years it is such a big counterfactual <laughs> like yeah. the Al Gore getting elected is just would have changed so much whereas all the other ones I can kind of go eh in the scale of what Al Gore getting elected would have been well, not to get too much on a tangent, but let's get on it. What, what what really would have decided the Al Gore difference is a if he would have had the intelligence capabilities to prevent nine eleven or a similar terrorist attack, and if not, how that response would have gone would definitely have reshaped the mold of our country in ways that are still being felt today. So yeah, it's yeah. It, it, we we need a really good. Uh, book and a really good uh, mini series on the what if Al Gore was president line. You know, like the plot against America is what if uh, Charles Lindbergh became a big political figure and beat Roosevelt in, during World War II and kept the U.S. out of the war. We, we need one of those for how does Al Gore deal with uh, Saddam Hussein? Yeah. So, but anyway, um, the current crisis. So. There, there's been some uh, numbers that have come out of China about how their economy is doing. And so for a uh, refresher, China has been on a 30-year economic expansion, just completely unprecedented. And it's looking like this may be the first quarter where it actually contracts, where it gets smaller due to the uh, isolations required by the coronavirus. And they have actually lifted their uh, a good amount of their strict social distancing regulations, like a lot of businesses is allowed to do, but there's a whole lot of testing and tracing, which is a whole other subject that I feel like is hardly getting discussed in the United States. But anyway, and so they have recovered their economy. They have gone back to as much as business as usual as they can right now. But the, 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 uh, some of the concerns about this, uh, recovery, you know, the bounce back, there has been a hope that, uh, you know, if you were to look at the line of GDP on a graph, that it would look like a V curve where just for one quarter it went way down, but then the next quarter it went right back to where it was. So creating a V shape. Then there was some question, you know, there's uh, other ways people like to think of it, like a U curve where it gets slow, though, then hits a rock bottom, then slowly comes back up, but then rapidly. Or then there's the idea of a Nike swoosh where it declined rapidly and then over time it reaches back to where it was, but it takes a long time to do it. 
And at least in the Chinese economic data, it's looking like they're at about 80% where they were before this happened. So it's looking like the Nike swoosh may be at least the scenario in China. We don't know what it's going to look like in the United States yet. But we are seeing some other things going on in the United States that is not looking great for the let's reopen shit right now argument which has been happening in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, so I have two, well, two, two companies that have uh, boarded up operations or halted operations, at least temporary, who are essential. And two of those two are, there is the, I believe it's the Smithfield pork plant in Monmouth, Illinois, and a few Tyson chicken uh processing plants out in their system where they are actually stopping operation of what are essential businesses because too high of a percentage of their staff have the coronavirus. So the this is just bonkers, the idea that if we were just allowed to do things, that people would do things. Um, people are starting to pin that all this these issues are based on the government shutdown, but no, it's the coronavirus. People are self-preserving, and if they believe that there's a significant risk that they will contract a virus from doing business, they're not going to do business. Even the few businesses that are allowed to run and are, you know, seeing such a high demand in their business, so. The fact that these food producing processing plants are shutting down temporarily to deal with the coronavirus just shows that we're not through this yet. And that just, you know, if the government were to just go, hey, you can go do whatever, then we wouldn't do whatever. So, yeah, some people would. I think this came up. Last week, there are there are some people who would go out and and take charge, but there's enough people who take this very seriously that we wouldn't see the economy return to normal. Not not even close. Yeah. Um, So um, then there's also, you know, the, the big thing is that this probably won't end until there's a vaccine. And um, actually today, a podcast came out on the Ezra Klein show. I know we talk about it all the time. It's all we listen to. I listen to. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> with it, it was a conversation with Bill Gates. And Bill Gates was the one in 2015 who said he was scared that a uh, you know the next big thing that we should be worrying about is a pandemic. And here we are. And his fears came true. And but he did offer some comforting ideas. So one was that. So while we don't have a full fledged, fully checked out, um, you know, fully certified vaccine for like SARS and MERS and, you know, these other coronavirus strains that have existed, um, it turns out that once there was kind of like an early development vaccine for them that was effective enough then they were no longer able to keep testing for it because um 
it had done well enough or the disease had gone away. So he is hopeful that in 18 months um, that we will be able to develop a vaccine, which would be the fastest vaccine development in the history of man. But he, you know, I, I'm somewhat comforted that he's uh, at least somewhat optimistic about being able to meet that kind of time window, which isn't near what we would like it to be, but it's way better than, you know, alternatives. And then yeah. there was, and then there was also it was, uh, some discussion about how, so the United States, you know, and most countries spend a lot of money on military and they have plans and they have constituent contingencies and they're able to respond to all these things. But think about like the, this disease control stuff. And as we get, you know, as humans get more densely populated throughout the world, as we get close to each other, you know, and we're close to animals and all that stuff, which is how virus transmission happens is it's a question of whether these bugs, these viruses are going to be more common. And if we should, as a society, collect collectively step up and require the governments, I mean, at least of the United States, but others to have more capacity to be able to deal with this. Like, what if we work tirelessly to streamline a system where we can make you know, we know how to make vaccines for viruses so that if a new one comes up that it takes, you know, maybe a matter of months instead of a matter of years to make a vaccine that can, you know, that would help be effective in the world. Um, so there's just some question of whether that's something that needs to be done. I've listened to another interview with someone who worked on developing vaccines for coronaviruses. And she said that she just she had been working on them for a long time, but funding dried up. So all the samples went into her freezer and they've just been sitting there. <laughs> um, so, you know, this kind of goes back to uh, the Michael Lewis fifth risk thing where I haven't even read the book, but I listened to a really <laughs> great interview with him where he explained a lot of it. At least I think so. And how the, the you know, the government governments in general, but especially the United States government, just manages a portfolio of risks that can happen to society. And a lot of them are small enough that no individual can really account for them on their own. And whether we need to have better safeguards in place for, uh, for disease prevention and disease control I, I, you know, maybe I'm here looking at the exception and saying we need to do more where the rule is not having a pandemic. But there is just, I, you know, I think there should be more that should be able to be done or at least not get rid of the office of the pandemic control officer or whatever the hell that office that Trump disbanded last year at some point. So pandemic response team. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um... Well, I think there's there's something to be said for the potential for the increased frequency of these types of events for the reasons that you mentioned. 
And that's kind of the problem with managing risk is that if you can do your job okay, it looks like your job isn't needed because if you're effectively managing the risk, the worst things never come true. And then it's easy for someone to say, especially if someone believes that the taxes are inimical to human existence for some reason, that it's bloat and that the, the entity that's managing the risk doesn't need to be. So this is a very big example, but hopefully people can at least take away from it the importance of risk management on a big scale, whether or not it feels like we're using each individual component part in the moment. Because when we don't have an appropriate infrastructure in, in place, now we've seen the dire consequences. Yeah, and it, just in a greater conversation, it just seems like it's really easy to just kind of at the highest level be like, the government is doing too much. Like, it's too much. It's taking too much of my money. It's bloated. And we need to put a stop to that. But once you start to take a closer look at individual functions of the government, I mean, maybe sure, there's some conflicting rules between OSHA and the uh, National Labor Relations Board about, you know, the you know, which way your door goes in your bakery or some shit like that. And, you know, if some officer comes and bullies you about it, that's maybe a, that that's an overstep. But then if you look a little bit closer at other things that they do, like manage a nuclear weapon stockpile, um, they need to be doing that. <laughs> um, that's a very important. That's a very essential part. You know, Rick Perry, when he ran for president in 2012, the he said he wanted to cut three agencies and famously at a debate, he forgot the third agency and that was the Department of Energy. And he is the secretary of the Department of Energy now. And he, you know, funny enough, he didn't get in there and immediately try to dismantle it. He got in there and realized oh shit, the Department of Energy does a lot of very important stuff. <laughs> and from the outside, that you know, this is risk management at the highest level. This is, they are doing their job right and nobody knows and they're doing it so right, it just assumes that's how the world is and that's not a risk, so we could just get rid of it. Like there are so many systems in the world where it you know if things are going right you can just kind of assume that's the natural order of things but then as soon as you know a few of the right people are taken out or you know some underlying condition changes or uh, you get the someone who isn't as committed to it or as capable in a position that has some real power then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's not the given nature of things. We had to work for this. We took this for granted, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like at least the last 20 years of kind of the anti-government uh, rhetoric has just been taking advantage of what we believe to be the natural order of things, of... 
the United States being a unilateral uh, superpower in the globe and that, you know, our society just runs as it should and doing what we believe it should be doing. Whereas we seem, you know, we've been seeing time and again that it hasn't been and that you actually have to take it seriously for it to actually to work right. Mm-hmm. Like, hell, take Katrina for an example. This is way back in the old days um, when George Bush was in office. And that was just absolutely bungled. You have to try to do things. Or even recently, the the response to the um, Hurricane Maria that went through Puerto Rico. I don't think they've still recovered from that. No. And, and, and this current coronavirus case where... The United States could have had a response to it that was effective. Um, It doesn't take too much creative imagination to do that. And I mean, Trump even bragged about, you know, recognizing it early on. Well, if you recognize it early on, he did nothing. He did (laughs) nothing about it. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that can happen that we will never know about. And nobody will ever talk about, but is managing risks to your life without you knowing about it. And, and disease control is one of those, like, um, we go back to like the Ebola issue. Like there was a real chance if, you know, the steps that, you know, whatever steps were taken, Ebola could have come to this country and killed a lot of people. Um, but it didn't, it stayed mostly isolated in Africa and it, we could have had a similar case here or where, you know, we did get coronavirus, but because we put in adequate, uh, you know, stoppages to social meetings or, um, you know, developed certain patterns or got everybody to wear masks or had appropriate, testing from the beginning to know what was going on, then maybe we could have been able to better handle this. But since none of that happened, it's just kind of been up to the states to deal with it that we are having such a bad response to it. Or, I mean, at least as a, you know, at the macro level, a bad response to it. So when we talk about this, the distinction between the public sector managing risk so that the private sector can continue on unabated, we are now finding out that the consequences do extend to the private sector. So, Joe, what were you finding about companies who are starting to close their doors for good on account of this coronavirus? Yeah, so... The, I mean, I want to hype it up as a segment, but it's it's not great stuff that's happening. So <laughs> um, it's looking like this week, as far as news stories that I could find. Um, so CMX Cinemas, which is a cinema chain down in Florida, they are filing for bankruptcy, which has crossover with Evan. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, I don't really know that particular chain, but we talked last week about how movie theaters were uniquely vulnerable to this pandemic, and we're starting to see those 
fears become realized. Yep. Then here's another thing affected by, I mean, all of these are going to just seem emblematic of the whole thing, but um, Diamond Offshore Drilling Company, which uh, drills for oil in the Gulf Coast, they have filed for, uh, not the Gulf Coast, the Gulf, no, what is that? What is that body of water called? Where? The Gulf, the Gulf of Mexico. There we go. Whew. <laughs> The, because the goal, I, I called it the Gulf Coast, but I was thinking the Gold Coast. Okay. Enough, well, enough there, uh, I mean, me getting confused. That's referred but, uh, to the Gulf Coast, you know. Uh, I guess. Florida Gulf Coast University is is the located in the segment of Florida that's by the um, by the Gulf of Mexico. So that's, that's not unheard of. Yeah. And I guess Kent is a state. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So they filed for uh, bankruptcy because oil is so cheap that, you know, it's not even there are a lot of different ways to extract oil and offshore drilling isn't one of the most expensive. Um, So but it's expensive enough that they can't survive this current round of, uh, you know, energy prices being as low as they are. So, yeah. So the the thread there is that. People are not traveling, therefore demand is down, which means price has to go down. Well, in also the condition is being met that production is not being cut. The Saudis have not taken meaningful steps to reduce oil production, and so we're having the same supply and lower demand, which leads to lower price. And yeah. it's not sustainable for every firm. Yep. Yep. So a lot of oil operations are going to be going out of business now. That doesn't mean they're gone for good. I mean, I mean, we did have the big environmental talk earlier in the day, but oil is valuable enough that if prices do jump back, I mean, it won't be these exact firms, I'm sure, but it'll be firms comprised of mostly the same people and the same equipment, but um, under a new name. Yeah. So. That's uh, that's one part of creative destruction is that if they're, you know, even if one firm is mismanaged or has to go bankrupt, if there's still enough profit to be made there, they'll come back um, in some way or another. Um, and uh, at least for confirming filing to bankruptcy, uh, hair cuttery, which is a chain of hair salons, is uh, filing for bankruptcy. So... <laughs> Makes a lot of sense pretty, when they've pretty, been barred from yeah. doing their business. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're but, seeing it's kind of a question of which companies have enough cash on hand to just withstand this. Yeah, and to help with that cash on hand, to update our another segment from last week, the government authorized additional funding for the Paycheck Protection Program, and on the rollout of the second wave. The website crashed, and it looks like the money is going to run out even more quickly. They had double the amount of applications already for that. So I appreciate them for attempting to get it pushed back out, but the the level of funding is still laughably inadequate given the demand and the need for small businesses all over the country. I mean, hell, they didn't even need to really put a dollar amount. They could have just had it be an open-ended thing that, as an entitlement. But but then once you introduce um, 
you know, in like a sort of entitlement in times of or in bad times, then there becomes a day when you're like, uh, nope, we're done with that. The crisis is over. And then there are still people who are like, what? I'm still in crisis. Yeah, um, I still need it. Yeah. You know, I was thinking of, uh, you know, the the podcast, the platform that we normally use to host our call for this podcast, Zencaster, they've offered a greater uh greater openness to the features uh that it has for uh the coronavirus it allows you know more recording time and uh have people guess which are normally paid features but you know at some point who knows maybe this will just become the new normal which is one thing to consider but then also what if at some point they need to go nope uh that's it uh the coronavirus is over these are going to be paid options again then there's you know there's a good chance that there are some people like wait a minute the crisis hasn't ended for me and i still need these features but i don't have the money to pay for it mm-hmm. so it's uh it's something to think about you know if the payment protection plan was a totally just fully funded entitlement program then at some point um if it went on for too long businesses would just put that into their business calculation of what they needed to do and then um I mean, it depends on the structure of it. Yeah. Yeah, And then just keep going on. And then all of a sudden, oh, the cost of, you know, part of factoring in the cost of business is getting the check from the payment protection program. And then all of a sudden we're 30 years down the road. And it was like, what paychecks are we protecting? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Um, And then also it's been uh, rumored that JCPenney is looking to file for bankruptcy as well. So... Lots of, yeah, that would be a big one. That would be a real big one. I think they've already done bankruptcy once, and it does get confusing because um, there are different types of bankruptcy and also sometimes bankruptcy protection. So, like, filing for bankruptcy is saying that you can't pay your debts, and then oftentimes, and then it can result in selling off all the assets to try and pay off those debts and then what have you but then there are different types of bankruptcies where sometimes you know you can declare bankruptcy but keep going on just at a diminished capacity it's it's strange um well I'm it's not like super... what uh what went down with toys r us toys r us filed for bankruptcy and it was just so that they could liquidate certain assets lay off staff and then relaunch as jeffrey's toy box although i don't know if that that probably isn't going to happen on that on their scheduled timeline at this point. Well, and, and the, there is a question of whether, I don't even know if that was the strict plan for Toys R Us. It's just that, um, when these companies go bankrupt, the one thing that they get to hold on to is the brand name. And sometimes companies will come in and buy those old brand names because they are at rock bottom prices and they have convey some sort of value to people or, you know, have some already preconceived notions of a brand. Um, but, yeah, the Toys R Us that uh, was in Racine, which is near me, is uh, it's now a Burlington Coat Factory. So that was a quick turnaround on that. But I, I who knows how they're doing now? Yeah, they just opened up like right before this all happened. So, oh, man, <laughs> yeah. And then um, 
coming on the platter of things to talk about with bankruptcy is um, Mitch McConnell floating the idea that maybe we should let states go bankrupt. Yeah, Um, which is pretty rich coming from him when Kentucky receives more federal aid than it pays in federal tax revenue. Um, It's just, uh, to me, you know, I know we try to look at it in good faith, but it just seems like a bullshit posturing thing for him to say death to my enemies and fuck off. Mitch McConnell is like a black hole of bad faith. Like, yes, that's a really great way to describe him. <laughs> like uh, you could, uh, I think a lot through all of this, the veil of good faith has been taken off of Mitch McConnell. Some people mm-hmm. will ex- still extend it and look at his stuff in good faith, but he is just a man. A, a he is a master tactician. Um, he'll do whatever he needs to do to win. Yeah, there's but, not a shred of objective reasoning to what he does. Every move is calculated to maximize his power. Yeah. So, but um, letting states go bankrupt. So we're we're at a you know with the coronavirus, we're at a situation where uh, at a bigger macro level. So. The United States federal government can issue all this debt because, one, the United States has a very good credit rating. It is seen as the gold standard of, uh, of you know, credit. You know, it's, it's oftentimes rated at AAA. If you buy a U.S. Treasury bond, it is pretty much 100% guaranteed that over time they will uh, pay it back to you with interest with the interest prescribed on it. So that allows the United States government to issue a lot of debt. And then there's, you know, what's going on. You know, the, they have the federal reserve to buy a debt from them and all these tricks to do. And since they run the currency, they can do that. Whereas the States don't run their own currencies. They don't have their own federal reserves and they don't have gold standard credit ratings. Um, so they aren't able to take on debt nearly at the level that, uh, or even withstand taking on debt that the federal government is able to. And even some state constitutions uh, have, have balanced budget, balance <laughs> budget amendments, which prevent yeah. them from taking out debt, even in times of crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at a situation where there are a lot of states where, so state governments often fund their government. Well, not often, but there are a fair number of state governments that fund their government by means that aren't income or, you know, the ways that the federal government gets their tax dollars. So a lot of states fund their state government by sales tax. Well, what's uniquely being hit by this sales of things. Um, so there's not going to be as much sales tax coming in which means not enough money, you know, coming in to even uh, hold up normal operations. And then with this greater need, there's going to be even more pressure on state budgets that they're just not going to be able to do it. And there's a real chance that they may get to the point, just be like, uh, we can't pay anything. I mean, some states even come to this, even in times of not crisis. Um, There is... Um, as far as municipalities uh, and bankruptcy, the, I think the light, most recent 
case that was uh, notable was the city of Detroit going bankrupt. But I mean, before that, they had I think they had to get like some sort of like judicial or governmental or federal government permission that they could go bankrupt. (laughs) So states going bankrupt would be would really ensure that a lot of pain and suffering for a whole lot of people would happen. And yeah. Yeah. But it becomes a question of leadership and letting Mitch McConnell take the lead in this conversation is clearly problematic. Unfortunately, I think this is also a good time to widen into a conversation about presidential leadership because i don't know about you joe but the way i see it either donald trump believes that cleaning products can be ingested and affected effective internally or he decided that a great time to bust out his trademark sarcastic wit was when he should be leading and reassuring during a global crisis, and neither inspires confidence. Has it seemed like the president has ever been remorseful at the people who have died? No, or, not or once. Even if it's, you know, maybe somebody could find one instance where he says, and to the memory of all the people who died or something, but his demeanor doesn't act like it. Like on uh, like on Sunday, he went on a big Twitter tirade about the coverage of how he's been handling this. And not once was there a tweet uh, actually about coronavirus, about what's going on. You wouldn't have even guessed that there is a big crisis going on in society. The dude just does what he does. And, you know, forget about the reports of what he does in a day and you know, you know, is he just sitting watching TV and eating hamburgers or is he working at the office all day? Kind of regardless, it doesn't seem like he's taking it too seriously, at least outwardly. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to be the guy who sits here pining away for Ronald Reagan, who could plaster on his actor face and lie through his teeth, but at least reassure the country I don't I don't necessarily need that but I get that he doesn't like the press but now seems like a pretty bad time to intensify that war you know do something to show that you take this seriously do something to reflect the somber mood of our national psyche but, you know, I at least I'm not surprised because if you would have asked me to sketch out how I thought Donald Trump would respond to a crisis, this is probably pretty close. We we know what we're getting at this point, but that doesn't mean that it's not fair to criticize it when it becomes realized. You know, in, in a in a, you know, press briefing or speech or what have you, whatever you want to classify it as. He said, you know, a lot of people a long time ago could have done things to prevent this, but here we are in the situation that we have, and a lot of people are dying. And it's like, geez, the, so what? The buck stopped with someone, you know, years ago who did something wrong? Is that where the blame lies? Is that where 
I mean, he there are, you know, there's a tweet for everything with Donald Trump. And he criticized, you know, Obama on how to handle the Ebola crisis and the swine flu crisis and which were not nearly at the level of this. And he was giving Obama shit for not owning up to it in some way (laughs) or or, you know, some perceived idea that Obama wasn't owning up to it. And it's like the buck stops at the president in a crisis. You own everything. And then now Trump as president is like, I have been absolutely 100 percent perfect. Anything that is bad is everybody else's fault. And And, I mean, yeah, it's it's good to compare his rhetoric as president as uh, versus what he said about the Obama presidency. But, geez, just take a look at his rhetoric as a as a candidate and as the president. As the the candidate, he said, when it comes to the problems in this country, I alone can solve it. And now he's just kind of throwing his hands up like, yeah, <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to be looking at for this one, guys. I mean, he he is at every moment trying to play all sides of the same coin. Like every time there is something that's even positive, he takes great credit for it. And anything that is negative, he had no hand in it and doesn't know them. Um, He is... He is trying to simultaneously be everything to everyone, and it just is not good. I don't. It, it just. I just wish he would take it seriously, or maybe you know they've stopped their press briefings now. But maybe if at their press briefings they even looked like they were practicing social isolation or social yeah. distancing, at least a little bit, or if he wore a mask or just anything to make it look like he took it seriously like it it just is mind-boggling to me and there is there has to take some responsibility for it and he's just not um it's just it, you know i try not to look at what trump does anymore my mind is made up, and I I will make that clear. Maybe this is in bad faith, um, or some people will see it in bad faith. But I try to extend good faith for as long as possible with this. And if Trump did anything that was genuinely good, I, I'd acknowledge it. But this just seems to be bad, just so bad. Like People will be like, oh, did you see this crazy thing Trump did? And I'm like, no. Because I stopped paying attention a long time ago because it's too much because I'd be outraged every day. Yeah, the outrage fatigue is so real. I can't get outraged anymore. When I see other people getting outraged, I'm like, fuck, you still have that? (laughs) Like, you're still able to muster up some outrage at what's going on? Anything more than a slight Twitter dunk, you know? (laughs) Like it just um, I am fatigued. That's one thing I like about this podcast normally is that we get to talk about things that aren't just Trump, because (laughs) if we had decided to go down that route, this is all we would ever talk about. Um, 
I there's like a lot how, of other things. There's yeah, a lot there's of a lot of ideas. We're we're actually working on trying to get back to that. You know, hopefully these next few episodes will have uh, topics that aren't just what's going on and oh shit, is that scary? <laughs> um, Maybe we'll talk about Kim Jong Un. I don't know. We need more oh, confirmed fuck. reports. That was yeah. We didn't. That was like <laughs> a tenth level story this week, like or tenth uh, <laughs> banana story. Tenth like. string, yeah. I there's just so much going on and being someone who tries to be informed at least adequately it's been a whole lot and it's hard to and you know like we've explored before it just seems like we're at a time in history where there's so much damn information how do you choose what to look at <laughs> yeah the thing that gives me comfort on information overload is that we think of it as a unique problem, but people have always been afraid of information overload. When I was in graduate school, they showed us this picture uh, that was titled Information Overload, and it was a drawing from like the 1800s. And it was a sketch of someone just in a room filled with a ton of books. And that was the title of the piece was Information Overload. So we've always been worried about having more information that we could digest. But people have gotten around it. We're just still adjusting right now. And we're also dealing with the kind of unique problem of uh you know the old news saying if it bleeds it leads where we're kind of bombarded with the most outrageous and sensationalistic information all the time which leads to this outrage fatigue which i do believe is a unique phenomenon yeah so (laughs) one thing that i do to not be so up on everything is limit what my news is Go to sources that are a little bit slower. The Economist. I like reading Vox a lot. Listen to podcasts, but not the everyday what's happening ones. Uh, it's um, I just try to stay away from like the the minutia of every day because you know unless you're an insider somewhere, what what is it for? Um, you know, at some level, what do I care what Trump does with his day? I mean, we already did this at the beginning of his presidency. Do we need to go another round of figuring out that he's not doing much? (laughs) So that's, that's kind of our, the entirety of our ethos here is there's a bar. We decide to call it the adequate bar being adequately informed where you have to know what's going on and you have to be able to participate in civic discussions. But there does become a point beyond which the extra inputs do not make you happier or better able to deal with life. And it's important to understand that level and take care of yourself in addition to staying informed yeah i think that's a good place to end that segment you know i really agree yeah 
So did you have, you had an end segment, right? Yeah, yeah. We got some viewer mail this week, so I want to go ahead and address the question. It says, it's from our longtime listener, Michael M., and it says, Hello, AI. I would like to be adequately informed about a campaigning politician, Dr. Shiva from Massachusetts. I had gotten into an unwanted debate about COVID-19 with an old acquaintance, and he was sourcing Dr. Shiva, and he said that we as humans are naturally immune but he, Michael says he's calling BS on this logic. He says, I've researched him and found no medical publications or research. I'd like to know how this Dr. Shiva is, if he's just a politician or someone that has a legitimate medical background. So I did some digging on this man who is referred to as Dr. Shiva. And I found out that this, uh, who he's referring to is a man named Dr. Shiva Ayudapai, and Dr. Shiva is, he has a doctorate, but he is not a medical doctor. He has four degrees, and strangely, all of them are from MIT. That's That, that I think, is rare, <laughs> that someone goes to an institution, the same institution for four degrees. But it is MIT, so a good institution. And his PhD is in bioengineering, so clearly a smart guy, but... He's not a licensed medical doctor. He is not a virologist. And he's really not qualified to speak with authority on on the immunity response in regards to COVID-19. I also found out that, yes, this guy is currently running for Senate in Massachusetts. He challenged Elizabeth Warren in 2018. He ran as an independent. And he got uh, 3.4% of the vote, which, I mean, I guess good for him but that's less uh, less vote share than the tiger king guy got when he ran in oklahoma so that's really what not. i call a wednesday <laughs> i don't get it but anyway is it a tiger king reference no i was oh. just insinuating that i can get three percent of the vote on wednesdays oh that's what i, I got it normally. too bad that the elections are on tuesdays yeah <laughs> I get the results on Wednesday. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and like I said, this guy is credentialed by MIT. I'm sure that in his field, he probably could speak with authority, but it seems like he's one of these guys where the politics overwhelms the science. And uh, Michael, so you know, this this uh, Dr. Shiva has a long history of saying controversial things outside of his field that are not supported by science. He claims to have invented the internet because in the late 1970s, he was working on a code for a form of email, even though other forms of electronic mail had existed since the early 70s. He vastly overstated his importance in the development of email. Um, He has raised unfounded fears about GMOs. He's fear-mongered about that. And he has propagated the idea that Dr. Anthony Fauci is a deep state agent who is making up all of his information about coronavirus, even though Fauci is the one with the subject area expertise and Dr. Shiva is not. Well, I'm sure hope Dr. Fauci would be in the deep state. He's been in government long enough. (laughs) Yeah. So if if that makes him evil, I guess Dr. Shiva's got it there. 
Um, it definitely seems like he is trying to leverage his credentials in one field to give him false credibility when talking about other scientific matters. Nothing that he says when he speaks on these hot-button political issues is motivated by credible research, and so I can see where it's tempting for your friend to believe that he's a really great source, but he is out of his depth. And the despite all of this, this is still, I have not yet revealed the most interesting aspect of the life of Dr. Shiva Ayadupai. What is it? For over two years, he was in a committed monogamous relationship with Fran Drescher, the nanny. I don't, I don't know who that is. She's the one with the really annoying voice. <sighs> All right. Well, this was not the right audience for that big reveal. I, I thought it was, uh, thought it was quite a twist, but um, you can't win them all. Yeah. Well, anyway, there there is a long storied history in the history of the world of educated people who use their education to speak on subject matters that are not their own and mislead people with their authority. So sounds like he's one of them. Yep. So you can uh, go back to your friend and say that or not. I guess you said he was more of an acquaintance. And um, I mean, if we were naturally immune, I don't think people would be dying. So mm. <laughs> No, man, they're dying from other things. Deep state. Oh, okay. Yeah, the the deep state. Well, I think on that note, I think it's time to end. We'd like to thank you, as always, for listening. Um, we would like to thank Anthony Hish for uh, making the music. Evan, do you have any last-second comments? Thank you so much to everyone who has expressed well wishes regarding my recent wedding the outpouring of love has been amazing and even though we did have to make a lot of concessions to keep everyone safe uh lindsay and i are just so overwhelmed by the love and thank you to everyone for listening yeah and on that note my name's joe hicks mine's evan kelly and we hope that you've been adequately informed